Everyone who knows me knows how much I love announcements. So anyway, um, first, after uh, the second service, about noon, I'm guessing, 11.45 noon, there's going to be a luncheon for our senior adults, and I know you're like, I'm not a senior, but if your kids would call you a senior, you should probably go. And, uh, but anyways, it's going to be in this room off to my left, it's on the other side of that partition there. And so we'd love to, for you to stay and, and get to know some of our leaders that are working to build relationships and, you know, provide ways to help. So you may not be in need of a lot of help right now, but you might be where you could help somebody, and that would be great. So uh, that's after church today. Second thing I need to announce you is, announce is that we are replacing foundations with a new series called Discover, basically, which will be an introduction in three workshops. So next Sunday, we're starting that series. So at noon next Sunday after that second service, we're starting Discover Ordinary Faith, which will be a, a simple introduction to every what we're about at Ordinary Faith, our values, our mission, what we're trying to do, uh, so forth. If you never, if you're not familiar with that stuff, you should plan to come. In fact, what I would like you to do so it would help us out because we do offer lunch. Now it's simple, like bologna sandwiches or something, but it's it's just a simple lunch. But we we will take care of your lunch. It's an hour long, so it's shorter than it used to be. And, um, but if you would just text the word discover to 307-224-4404, I don't think I have a slide for that right now, but 307-224-4404, that's one of the church's numbers, that's our text number, 224-4404, if you just text the word discover to that and let me know you're coming. Now that's at noon. Now the third Sunday of each month, there'll be two of them each week, and so at each month we'll do a Discover Ordinary Faith for anyone who would like to know about ordinary faith. And then at 4 p.m., no frills, no lunch, no food, pure suffering. <laughs> We're going to have a workshop. And that workshop, the first one will be Discover Discipleship. So if you have any questions about the Christian faith, that's what we're going to go through, the basics of what that takes. Then next month, we will cover discover growth and how to grow in your Christian life. And then the third uh, month, we'll discover discover life, okay? Now, these are workshops. You go through all of those workshops, you should have a good footing to walk in your Christian life on, okay? That's the goal of those so that you can go forward and uh, you won't have to be dependent upon any nuts. You can be the only nut in your life. No, I'm just kidding. The goal of those is to connect you with Jesus and help you walk you through. Okay, has everybody got that? Give me a nod like you would stay awake through that. That's why I hate announcements because everybody goes to sleep. Oh, it's announcements. <laughs> anyway, so. Okay, so today we're talking about prayer. And uh, I want to start by uh, thinking about, and, and so I'm like so short on time, so I'm going to try not to talk too fast, and then, so I'm going to try and cut things as I go. But let's start with a guy named Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a... a um, a character that you meet in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Now, Jeremiah was, uh, God called him when he was young, and he got the honor of being the guy to give the bad news his entire ministry. That was it. He was the one who watched the final decline and fall of, um, of Jerusalem and uh, Judah. Okay, He got to be there to tell them all the things they were doing wrong. Don't, don't, don't you love that job? Don't you love being the person who's to walk in and say, well, hey, here's everything that's broken. And so that was his job. So he was not well loved. No one loves that guy. Okay, And so we see this scene in Jeremiah 38 verse 6 where Jeremiah got into trouble again. He was always getting into trouble for telling people what they didn't want to hear. And it says that the officials took Jeremiah from his cell and lowered him by ropes into an empty cistern 
in the prison yard. Now, there was no water in the cistern, but there was a thick layer of mud at the bottom, and Jeremiah sank down into it. Now, this is a, a sad moment in Jeremiah's life, but I'd like you to, to kind of get there. See that in your imagination. Here's this prophet trying to be faithful to God, and all he gets for being faithful is hated, and nobody likes him, and, and they just want him to die. They really want to kill him, so their, their second best option is to put him in this cistern, this hole in the ground, and that's empty of water, but it's just slime and mud at the bottom, and he just sinks down in the mud, and that is Jeremiah's plight at the moment. The irony of this little scene in Jeremiah's life is where Jeremiah started his ministry. In Jeremiah 2.13, just as he's beginning to really do the job God called him to do, he said to the people, voice of God speaks, says, for my people have done two evil things. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. So what I want you to see is that he began his ministry with this image that came from God about a, a, a cistern with no water in it. And now in Jeremiah 38, we see that he is trapped in that very cistern. So the, the image, the prophetic image became a metaphor in his life. Why, why does this matter? Well, I'll tell you why. We tend to find ourselves in places in life where we are in the muck. We are sunk in the mire of a cistern with no water in it. For whatever reason, usually it has something to do with us abandoning God in some way. And when you abandon God, you have no source of water, and so the water drains and all you have left is the muck that's, that's left over. The thing is, what are you going to do when you find yourself there? And as we go through the series on prayer first, this is, to me, this is about change, really, really fundamentally changing your life, changing your entire approach on the thing. And so when you find yourself in the muck and the mire, caught in the consequences of your own decisions, because we all make those choices and we end up in places we prefer not to be, what are you going to do while you're there? Because what is happening now, what's happening in our world is, is that in those moments and in the muck and the mire, we're just getting distracted. We just turn on the TV, grab the game controller, climb into Facebook. It's always on. Something to not think, I am stuck. I am in the muck. And I, I want out of this. And so as we, as we work through prayer, I'm giving you not... It's more than a tool. It's more than a practice. It's like breathing. You know, you should practice breathing. Did you know that? And most of you are thinking, no, that's pretty natural. It's actually not. Most of us are doing it wrong. We, we, and so prayer is one of those things that we just need to learn to breathe. And so as we, as we get into prayer today, I want us to learn how to enjoy it. How to love spending time praying. And so let's start with this idea. Let's start with the thought this. Prayer is critical to the long game. That's, that's, let's start with that idea. I want to give this to you. Prayer is critical to the long game. What do I mean? This life is longer than you think it is. Now, I know for some it ends up being short. But, I, you know, I, I had a pretty big round number birthday lately, and I realized I should have taken a lot better care of myself, you know, uh, that I, I should have been smarter about a few things. 
It happens. We all hit those moments. Life is just, it's a long road. And that eternal optimist Job, that was sarcasm, he said, man who's born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. And so there's a lot of things going on in this life, a lot of things you're going to hit. Peter said, hey, don't be surprised by the, the trials that are coming. You may live 70, 80, 90 years, man. Um, you realize that almost half of all ma- marriages last your whole life. That's funny. Think about it. Most people don't act like they do. I mean, it, realize, really, if, the, if a young couple got together and go, you know what? We could be stuck together forever. We should work on this thing. That should be the thought. Rather than, no, we'll just do whatever we want for 20 years until we're in trouble, and then we'll try and fix it. Not a good plan. So I'm just saying this is a long road, and so I think prayer, I know that prayer is critical to that idea that um, these things. So I want to share two psalms with you today, Psalm 40 and Psalm 62. In Psalm 40, the psalmist writes, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and he heard my cry. And he, sorry, I might get a little emotional today. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. And he set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. Have you ever fully realized that we need God's help? I mean, we need help. There are no magic bullets in life. Have you figured this out yet? There, are, there is no weekend class you're going to go to, no $500 seminar you're going to hit that's going to fix the rest of your life. There, there are miracles that come from God, but there, there's nothing you are going to hit on your own and, and contain in yourself that's going to be enough. We just don't have the answers. And, and we have to realize, we have to get to a point, I can't learn enough, I can't hold enough, I can't remember enough, I can't share enough. In myself, I need help. Now, when I was a kid, I was kind of a, I was a chubby kid, kind of like I'm an adult. I'm a chubby adult. I was a chubby kid, too. I, you know, be consistent. All right. Well, here's the thing. When I was a kid, there were these things called seesaws, teeter-totters. I don't think they're safe enough anymore, but some of you guys remember them. Well, here's the problem with a teeter-totter slash seesaw. You've got to have a partner, and I was a heavy kid. Now, back in the 70s, there weren't a lot of heavy kids. I was the exception to the rule, okay? We didn't, somehow, kids were skinnier back then. You know, a lot of people lose friends. I launched a lot of friends. <laughs> I'm not kidding, man. I just, it was hard to find somebody to teeter-totter with, okay, when, you, when you're big. We, but you can't teeter-totter without a partner, I'm just saying. So sometimes life is like a seesaw. <laughs> it's up and it's down and you launch a friend or two along the way. <laughs> anyway... Not too long ago, I helped a guy in our church move. Well, it's been a while now because I'm trying not to ever help anyone move again. No offense, but I keep hurting myself. And so uh, this, uh, we were helping him move, and he had a gun safe. And uh, I understand why a man would want a gun safe. I just don't understand why a man would move a gun safe. Buy it, have it installed, buy a new one when you move. That's how you do this, okay? What's wrong with you people? Anyway, I had a gun safe, and he'll be in the second service, and I will call his name out, okay? But anyway... So we were trying to get this gun safe into his house. Weren't you there when we were doing this? <laughs> There's four or five of us guys, and none of us are really that small. Michael's pretty, you know, he's smaller than the rest of us, you know, and he used to be a fullbacker for the Ravens. But anyway, so um, 
full back, not full backer. But anyway, so um, so we got this this gun safe, and there's four or five of us guys trying to push it into his house, and the the unmovable force. We hit that point where it wasn't gonna, nothing was happening. We're all pushing and grunting, and no one we're gonna have to go see our chiropractor later. This kind of situation. And, uh, and, and the, the guy hollers, and he's got a neighbor across the street. says, hey, come help us. And this guy comes over, and this guy is three guys wrapped into one. I mean, he is big. And it's his day off, and he's out welding and cutting metal and smelling like burnt metal and stuff. And I'm like, this, I probably shouldn't be around this guy. He's more manly than I could ever hope to be. <laughs> and he gets in, and he just gets behind the thing, and there's a grunt, and it was like a bull showed up. Boom, it shoots in the house. <laughs> All of us are just watching it happen, you know, and thanking God that he brought this guy because we hurt ourselves. Sometimes you need help, and that's my point, is prayer is the realization that life is long. There's a lot that's going to happen, a lot you're going to face. You just are not enough in yourself, and God bless the day you discover that, that you realize that you need some help. And so prayer is critical in that way. And the, the psalm teaches us that. It goes on in verse 3 of the same song and says that he has given me a new song to sing. He showed up, pulled me out of the muck and the mire, verse 1 and 2. But then in verse 3 he says, he gave me a new song to sing. A hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he's done and be amazed. They'll put their trust in the Lord. Oh, the joys of those who trust the Lord, who have no confidence in the, in the proud or in those who, who worship idols. You hear us a lot of times... Uh, Michael and I'll say, and other guys that may take the pulpit in the classes, that that we should seek joy in life, but we we should seek more than happiness. It's not just about being happy, you know. And and we pastors say that a lot because we hear that a lot in our counseling. Uh, I've I've heard it several times over the years. Michael and I were talking about it. He has too a few weeks ago. Someone says, "Well, I just believe God wants me to be happy," and, and I want you know God wants a lot more for you than to be happy, and it's joy real joy but joy can be sustained when there is no reason in the world to be happy okay and so this psalm is talking about singing praise to god and being filled with joy and i think this is a really important message today studies came out in 16 2016 they updated the suicide studies and the 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 growth in the area of people wanting to commit suicide having committed suicide is just ridiculous nationwide suicide rates went up by 25 percent but in wyoming they went up by almost 36 percent 157 people took their life that year 2016 by suicide and the the reasons are are many the the number one reason over 40 percent is a relationship problem of all things but it's also there are many reasons drug use substance abuse um a sickness uh, those kind of things. There, there are a lot of reasons for it. The point is, is that we live in a world that's just getting more and more sad. That's just getting more and more depressed. And, and what's what's terrible is it's it's really nuts in our in our students, in our young adults, and and it's in school age children. It's just beyond belief. If you know ten students. The statistics say that at least two of them have seriously, not, not just talked about it, but have seriously contemplated suicide in the last 12 months. If you know 100 people statistically across any age, young or old, four of them have seriously considered suicide in the last 12 months or will in the next. And so I just want you to realize that we live in an age where people want to be happy, but they are 
just dying under sadness. There's a proverb that talks about, you know, that even in laughter, the heart is sorrowful. And I think that really speaks to the age in which I live. But I have a God who is a joyful God. I know that is hard. It is so hard for people to imagine God as filled with joy. But do you realize the Bible talks about him singing, talks about him dancing, laughing, all these amazing. God is amazing. And then look at Jesus. And Jesus' life, if you really read it, he had fun. I think God has fun. I think when God created the earth, he, he probably started out going, hey, guys, this is going to be a kick. <laughs> so God is a God of joy, and we need real joy in our life. So prayer is critical to get to that. Now, verse 5 of Psalm 40 says, Lord, my God, you've performed many wonders for us. Now, listen to this. Your plans for us, your plans for us, God's plans for you are too numerous to list. You have no equal. If I tried to recite all your wonderful deeds, I would never come to the end of them. You see, prayer realizes that there is a much larger purpose in my life than me. That God has so much more for me than I could ever imagine. That God has purpose and plans for my life. And, and where I defeat myself and how I end up in the muck and the mire is when I begin to try and build my kingdom and live out my will. But you see, God has a plan that's going to bring glory to him first and me that's going to advance his kingdom and his glory. And now he'll share that glory with me. And i got news for you. That's the only way I'll ever get real glory is when God shares it with me because he's the only one who could ever truly deserve to be glorified. And so I want you to know that prayer is important for this long game of life because we need help. We need joy, and he's the source of it. And he has a purpose. We need purpose, reason to be here, and reason to do things in this life. So heavenly perspective on all these things is so necessary, and I'm going to jump around a little bit, so bear with me, okay? Prayer, critical long game, prayer is a good time. So when we think about prayer, I don't think many people think of it as a good time. So I want to help you have a good time praying. So actually, the sermon is all introduction, and then the actual part of it is practical, and will take 35 seconds, okay? But I'm going to stretch it out as long as I can. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> First, as you think about prayer, and the thing about it is good, just remember a couple things about prayer. When we go into prayer, we go to a different place. I wait, I wait quietly before God, for my victory comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, where I will never be shaken. When we get into prayer, we take a moment and spend time with God, we begin to see like God sees. We begin to look at things like God looks at things. I love Revelation and I love the story of John. And it, to me, it's very instructive about how prayer works and how we should approach it. So let me give you two scriptures to, to set this, okay? Je, Revelation 1.10, John's, you know, kind of his diary here. It was, it was the Lord's day. So it was a Sunday, first day of the week. And I was worshiping in the Spirit. And suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. Now, what does this mean? What's John telling us? Well, John's... John had 
regular times set apart in his life that he waited on God, that he just prayed in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit, waiting on God, they're the same things in my mind and understanding. So in Revelation, he had seasons where he's just praying, waiting for God to show up. And I'm sure God showed up all the time, but on Revelations 1, in Revelation 1, he showed up in a very powerful way. And so John's praying in the Spirit. He's waiting on God to show up to do something, and God does. And I'm going to jump a few chapters back because Revelations 4.1 says this. John says, Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. And the voice said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must happen after this. Come up here. He's praying and waiting on God to show up, and what happens is God shows up and says, Hey, I want you to come up here. I want you to come boldly to the throne of grace, that invitation in Hebrews chapter 4. I want you to come up here. So prayer takes us up here. Yeah, you might be praying in your living room chair, or you might be kneeling beside your bed, or you might be at a table at a church, but when you start to pray, all of a sudden you are coming up here. You're changing your perspective now. You're beginning to see things from a different perspective. You're entering the holy place, the uh, like mission control of the universe. And so it changes your perspective. So that's good, because we need to change our perspective. And when we change our perspective, two things happen. One, we begin to, to gain some clarity and some understanding on what we're going through now, the present. So there's a story in the Old Testament I love very much. 1 Kings 18 and 19 tell the story of Elijah. The name Elijah means God is Jehovah or God is Yahweh. Uh, actually, how we would understand this is this. God is the real God. That's, that's what Elijah means. God's the real God. He's not a, a cheap imitation of the real thing. He's not an idol. He's real. That's what Elijah's name means. Well, Elijah had just had the biggest, most awesome victory of his life. It was his personal Super Bowl in 1 Kings 18. All right, He took out 400 murderous prophets of Baal, deeply embarrassed this wicked queen Jezebel. I mean, it was like awesome. And as soon as it's over, Jezebel hears about it and she says, I'm going to kill that dude. And that one line sends him flying into a, a grievous and deep depression. And I mean, it wipes him out. And he goes into hiding. And God shows up, sends an angel, feeds him, and sends him off to a mountain. And where I want to come into Elijah's story is where he's on the mountain and he's in this cave. So, biggest victory lowest depression now he's in the cave and and if i could be a little bit symbolic because i do that kind of thing that that cave it didn't just symbolize it did symbolize his despair but if you think about it he's there he's sad he feels like he's alone he's grieving all of his friends who've been murdered by this wicked queen and he's hiding in this cave and he's waiting for God to show up because God would said he was going to meet him there. I want to read you a text that's actually later in the story, but I want to read it first so you get his mindset. His mindset was this. 1 Kings 19.9 says, The Lord said to him, Elijah, he says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. That's the mindset of the guy in the cave. That's despair. That's depression. That's 
loneliness, defeat. And we all know it to one degree or another and some more than others. That's his place. And God says, hey, I'm coming. I'm coming. We're going to talk. We are actually at the point where they start the conversation, what I just read. But before this, God says, I'm coming. And when I get there, I want you to come out and talk to me. And so he's in the cave, in this mountain. So you're you're from Wyoming. You're familiar with um, mountains. I'm from Missouri, so I'm familiar with caves. There's some caves here too. And he's in that place of despair. And all of a sudden, a huge wind. I mean, a unnatural violent wind just tears on that mountain. He's in the cave. The wind's howling outside. It's, it's like a hurricane force or worse, just tearing that mountain apart. Rocks are flying around. It's so strong. Now, we know God sent the wind. But Elijah knew God wasn't in the wind. So he stayed in the cave. And then after the wind, the mountain started to shake. I mean a violent earthquake. It's a wonder the cave itself didn't collapse. Like God himself just picked up the mountain and shook it like an angry toddler at a science project or something, you know. Shook the mountain and Elijah's in the cave and the mountain's shaking and God sent the earthquake. But God wasn't in the earthquake and so Elijah didn't do anything. He just waited. Because that's what you do when you're waiting on God. You wait. Until you know God is in the moment. And so, then there was a fire. The cave got hot. The fire was unnatural, supernatural. Tore across that mountain. And God sent the fire. But God wasn't in the fire. And so he's in the cave. In his despair. In his aloneness. In his fears. In his grief. And the mountain has been blown apart and shaken apart and burned up. But God, even though he sent those things, he wasn't in those things. And then in the cave, in the still, in the quiet, in the waiting, Elijah hears, King James called it a still, small voice, a a bit of a whisper across the air. Probably said his name. And I, I, I think he probably said Elijah because of what Elijah means. God is the real God. That still voice wafted through the air and into that cave. And as soon as Elijah heard it, he knew God sent the wind, but he wasn't in the wind. God sent the earthquake, but he wasn't in the earthquake. God sent the fire, but he wasn't in the fire. But that voice, I know. God's in the voice. And so Elijah came out of his despair and out of his darkness and out of his aloneness. And before God, who he had been waiting to show up, who is always faithful to show up, he stood and declared all of those things. I'm alone. They're trying to kill me. They've killed all my friends. And I'm the only one. They've destroyed my very religion, God. And I'm the only one who's still zealous for you. And you know what he found out in that moment? When he stepped out of that cave and began to talk to God, he he went into the holy place in a sense. He was about to get some perspective. And that perspective was this. God told him, he said, Elijah, you're not alone. I got 7,000 other guys just like you that think they're alone too, but they're faithful to me. You're not alone. And then he said, you know what else, Elijah? I got a plan. 
I got a plan, and from that plan, you're going to raise up your successor, and you are going to deeply impact this nation. And so I want you to understand that when we go into prayer, we go into a place where God helps us come to terms with what we're going through. I wish I had time to tell a personal story, but I don't. Maybe it'll make it into the second service, okay? (laughs) But when we go there, we come to terms with where we are. Now, the second thing, or the third thing, so we get thing and thing and so forth. I'm sorry, my brain just jumped a cog. And when Elijah came off the mountain, or when he came out of that mountain, he got perspective on what he was and, and came to terms with where he was. But when he left the mountain, he walked out into a future. Now, that future wasn't just Elijah's future. It's interesting because from that meeting with God, God gave Elijah instruction to go pick up a student, a men- someone for him to mentor Elisha. Do you know what Elisha means? Elisha means God is salvation. So we have God who is the real God taking on God who is salvation to mentor them. Yeah, the symbolism is rich. And so he comes off the mountain and God, uh, Elijah picks up Elisha, and when he calls Elisha to follow him, this coolest thing ever, Elisha goes all in. You remember the disciples, when they followed Jesus, they left their nets on the shore? Well, Elisha, I'm going to get their names jumbled, forgive me, he shot his tractor. No, no, I'm just kidding. He didn't shoot his tractor. I just want to see if you're awake. You're not. Wake up. He killed his ox, which was kind of like the Old Testament version of a a tractor, and took the plow, the wood out of the plow he used to to farm, and used it to barbecue the ox, and then had a big old uh, celebration call all his neighbors together. He was done farming. I'm officially retired today. Now I'm going to be a prophet. And he started following Elijah. And he was a faithful uh, servant of God. I want to jump to the end of Elijah's story, though. So... Elijah took on Elisha. He left everything behind to follow God and to follow God's command. Elisha's an incredible young man. So it comes time for Elijah to go home. He's got a heavenly Uber lined up. He's a, there's a whirlwind coming to get him, you know. And uh, he's ready to go. He tried to get rid of Elisha all day long that day. Trying to get rid of his student the one who's trying to learn about God. So they're walking to where the Uber's going to pick him up, whatever it is, you know, the whirlwind's going to pick him up. And, and they go through Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is the first place in Canaan land the nation of Israel camped when they came into the promised land. When they came in to take the promised land, they came to Gilgal first. Gilgal, in history, in Elijah's time, Elisha's time, was uh, the place, it was like a... A getaway for all the prophets. Many of the prophets would go there for training, to rest. It was like the break room of the prophet school of the nation of Israel, okay? It was the comfort zone of the prophets. It's where all the prophets hung out. So Elijah takes Elisha to Gilgal and tries to dump him off in the break room, you know? Here, it's comfortable here. You'll be happy here. But Elisha's not having it. Elisha's like, nah, I'm with you, man. I don't need comfort. I need God. I need God who's the real God. So I'm following you. So they go from Gilgal to Jericho. Well, you, everybody knows the Jericho story. That's the first real battle of the Canaan land where the Israel came in and they took those walls down by walking around them and singing bad and shouting loud. And the walls came down and that was the first major victory of the Canaan, of the, uh, Canaan campaign. 
But you know, they got there, and, Elisha, and Elijah's like, hey, you can hang out here in Jericho. It's a place of victory. Elijah says, I don't need victories of the past. I need victories for tomorrow. And I'm following the God who's real God, because I want more than yesterday's victories. So they go from Gilgal to Jericho to the Jordan River. We know the Jordan River. That's where Naaman was, was basically baptized seven times. For his leprosy to be washed away, Jordan River's an old muddy river. I grew up on muddy rivers. Mississippi River's muddy down below the Missouri. And the Obion River near my home where I grew up, very muddy river. So I, I get muddy rivers. Jordan is a muddy river that flows into the, the Dead Sea. It's where John the Baptist did a lot of baptizing. Jesus did too because it symbolized the washing away of sin and washing them into death. But it didn't symbolize, because that was Old Testament baptism, and that was under the Old Covenant. It didn't symbolize life, because the Jordan River ends in the Dead Sea. And so they come to the Jordan River, and Elijah's like, hey, man, I'm going to cross right here. You can just stay. You don't have to get your feet wet today. Elisha's like, nope. I I don't need to know how to die. I need to know how to live. And I need to follow the God who's the real God. So I'm in. So they go across the Jordan River. Oh, I forgot one place. Just before the Jordan River, they went to Bethel. You know what happened at Bethel? Bethel means house of God. Bethel's where Jacob, it's where Jacob had his dream about the stairway to heaven. That Jesus told us that he was the stairway. Bethel was a place where the natural and the supernatural kind of bumped into each other. But it was a place of a dream. And Elijah tried to leave him there too. But Elisha said, I'm part of Jacob's dream, but I, have a, I want a new dream. I want God's dream. And so I'm following the God as the real God. So they get across the Jordan, all these different places, and they're out away from things. And finally, Elijah turns to Elisha and says, you are a stubborn cuss. No, that's not exactly how it went. When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away. And Elisha said, let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. I know you don't know why that moves me because, so I'm going to try and tell you. God, who is the real God, mentored a son who is the God who is salvation. The double portion is the portion of a firstborn son. You hear me? If I, in ancient times, if if of my eight children, my oldest is clay, I would divide my belongings up by nine and give my oldest son two portions and the rest of the sons would get one. That's how things worked. Do you understand what Elisha The God who is salvation is saying to the God who is the real God, I want to live like a son. I want a double portion. I want to take what you started, and I want to go twice as far with it, twice as hard with it, do twice as much with it. I want more than you have. It's the plea of a son to the Father. It's claiming a right And so when I look at this story and I see this actions of Elisha and and basically this prayer to Elijah says, I want twice a double portion 
I realize that prayer, it gives us perspective, no doubt, and it helps us come to terms with today, but it gives us hope for a future, a hope that there is more. There is so much more. There will never stop being more with your Father God. So that's my introduction. My my conclusion is this. I want you to learn to enjoy praying. I want you to see all those benefits, yes. But you know what I want more than anything? I just want you to start. And here's how you start. The first thing that you got to do is you got to make an appointment with God. Here, Isaiah 30, he says, the Lord, So the Lord must wait for you to come to him. Hear this now. Hear this verse. The Lord must wait for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. For the Lord is a faithful God. Blessed are those who wait for his help. Let me cut out the middle. The Lord must wait for you to come to him so you will wait for him to help. The Lord must wait for you to come to him so you will wait for him to help. There's dual waiting. God is waiting for you to come in his office, for you to enter the holy place. So make an appointment. Just just do it or you won't. Write it down. Make it a priority. Don't be... Do any of you have that friend that's always making appointments and always breaking them at the last second? Don't be that friend, okay? Make an appointment with God. And then when you make an appointment with God, go in and shut the door. Shut down all the stuff. Set the phone somewhere else. The Bible says, Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you. Pray to your Father in private. Then your Father who sees everything will reward you. It's time to focus. Time to fill your imagination with biblical images. Time to think about who God is, what He's done. That's how you keep from getting distracted. If all your prayer time is with God is this, God, I need that, I need a new car, I need some more money, I need my kids to listen to me, I need my wife to be nice, I need my husband to be kind. If that's all your prayer life is, guys, that's terrible. Is that the kind of relationship you want with your kids? Every morning, you meet them at the breakfast table, and they say, Dad or Mom, I need money for lunch, I need clothes to wear, my shoes are about to wear out. Wear out, and some of you are sitting there going, that is the relationship I have with my children. No, I'm just kidding. My, my point is, that's not a relationship. That's just questions. Go shut your door and be with your father. And then my last thing to say is this. Stay there as long as possible. Build up your prayer time. Pray as long as you can and stay as long as you can. And here's why. Here's why. We don't realize it, but we're doing the real work in prayer. The enemy is getting creamed when you're praying. That's why he's trying to stop you. That's why when you start praying, a thousand things come to mind of what you should do. Because when you pray, it freaks him out. And so, make that appointment. Shut the door and stay as long as you can. I have gone a little too long. Michael, would you take us into communion? Yes. <laughs>